Welcome to Tech Culture Interrupted, the National Center for Women in IT's podcast on building more inclusive tech cultures that foster diverse participation. I'm Dr. Catherine Ashcraft, Director of Research at NCWIT. And my name is Dr. Brad McLean. I'm a social scientist at NCWIT and also the Director of Corporate Research. And today's episode is all about interrupting everyday bias. And our special guest today is Kim Varaf from Apple, who has worked with us for several years on this very topic with her team. Kim is the Vice President of Software Programs at Apple. Hi, I'm really excited to be here with you guys today to talk about interrupting everyday bias and to share some learnings and experience that we had uh, working with you guys and my team. It's interesting as just a kicking off point to note that by some of these small changes that we're going to talk about today, it can make a difference for somebody on the team from going home and feeling like blah about themselves to walking out the door thinking like, rock on, I had an awesome day. So excited to talk about some of those things here with you. Great to have you here, Kim. So what do we mean by everyday bias? For example, have you ever noticed that particular people get interrupted more often in a meeting? Or some people get credit for other people's ideas. Or some people more often are told that they need to be toning it down or be more professional, not be so aggressive. So research shows that these kinds of subtle biases happen more frequently to members of underrepresented groups based on gender, race, or other social identities. And while most individual instances of these everyday biases may seem small, they add up. They're cumulative. So they represent a big reason that people feel a lack of belonging in an organization and may even choose to leave. So we'll be exploring some of these kinds of examples using terms like micro-inequities, personality penalties, and stereotype threats, which we'll talk more in more detail throughout this episode. Yeah, we have a couple of examples of that. One example was there was a few of uh, my team members in a meeting. They were running the meeting. There was a, quite a large meeting talking about very technical topics. And there was a woman in the room, happened to be a woman, and she was uh, giving an explanation as to a, a technical issue. And she got spoken over um, by a male on the opposite side of the room. And I thought my team handled it phenomenally well, which they let the person that interrupted continue to make his point, not being rude to him either. He finished and they went back to the woman who had been interrupted and said like, hey, you know, you didn't finish your thought. Could you please share, you know, the rest of what you were thinking about? Kind of a small thing, right? Mm -hmm. Again, I think they did a phenomenal job handling it. And then there was texts going all over yeah. the room from other people that hadn't been involved with it going like, oh my gosh, that was so great the way you guys handled that. And even after the meeting, there were people that were just excited about the fact that she got to finish making her point. So it tells you that people noticed, first of all. They did. And perhaps maybe noticed that kind of thing many times, but didn't know how to deal with it. Exactly. And if I remember right, although I may be thinking of another story, but if I remember right, they also were texting a little bit. The, your team members were texting ahead of time to make sure they were on the same, that they really had noticed something and to kind of confer about how they were going to address it together to turn the conversation back to her. If it's a story I'm thinking of, I think that that illustrates how much the camaraderie you build with the team and being able to support each other in making those kind of interventions, because sometimes it's hard to do. Yeah, it was absolutely a group effort yeah, yeah. Um, in, in doing that. Another example was we were seeing some 
presentations as a, a management team. And we walked into the room and there was a whole bunch of people in the room that were sitting, you know, there's a table in the center and it was pretty empty. And people were sitting on the outside sort of couches. And one guy that worked for me walked in and said, hey, why don't you all join me at the table? And it was just so inclusive because it wasn't calling anybody in particular out. It was just an inclusive join us at the table and everybody got up and joined us at the table and we started the meeting and it was obviously a much better meeting because of it and everybody felt great. And what's great is that once you hear these stories, then people are like, oh, I could do that. So it's like top of mind, like as you're walking in the room going like, well, this doesn't look good. And I think before that we would have said like, this doesn't look good in our head. And then maybe afterwards talked about it or something, but it was just so natural. So you you picked interrupting everyday bias is one of the very first topics that you wanted to tackle when you started working with your team with NCWIT. Why did you choose that? What was going on that made you think, yeah, let's start there? Well, logistically, it's probably one of the easiest things to pick. It doesn't require any approval. It doesn't require any process changes, really. It's just the way we're all sort of behaving. It's a, it's a great way to start because it includes everything. It sort of set the stage for the other work that we were doing. And talking to the team about it and getting work done on that was just just was becoming more aware of our of our biases that are occurring and try and you know what's interesting to me is is that the changes that our team put into place when you talk about them they sound so super simple so the changes are really small they're really simple and yet combined they make a measurable difference it's sort of like one of the things you did was make it okay to talk about right it's like the key thing in a way that one of the hardest things i think in Addressing everyday biases is just like, when do you bring it up? Or how do I talk about this? And so just kind of making it a norm in the team to have those discussions really um, takes that off the table. That's right. And as a matter of fact, you guys know that in my staff meeting, we started adding an agenda item that for the first five or 10 minutes, it doesn't take very long. We have an item to talk about any stereotype threats or unconscious bias that people have seen in the last week. And, you know, we sort of put it on the agenda and people kind of came in with a few things. And then over time, it was one of the best parts of the meeting. People were excited to come. We would talk about things that happened at work, but then people started bringing in things that happened outside of work. And it was just a great place to chat about like, hey, I saw this thing happen. And sometimes people would tell us success stories. And sometimes people would say, I didn't know what to do. Do you guys have any suggestions? And it became a great conversation and everybody felt completely comfortable sharing their thoughts and, and opinions about it. And would you say that happened pretty quickly or did it take a while to warm up to that kind of conversation? That particular conversation was fairly quick, like, you know, a couple weeks kind of thing where we all, I mean, we're kind of a close-knit group to begin with. So it was pretty easy to have that conversation. And th that was my, you know, direct staffs. But then it got to the entire organization where people just felt like comfortable and saying like, hey, I kind of saw this thing. And it just, it made it easy to know which words to use and that it was a comfortable environment for chatting about it. And, and it wasn't always like, this was a bad thing. Sometimes it was like, I don't know, was this okay? Like, let's, it was a conversation. Did anybody ever approach you and 
let you know that they were uncomfortable with having that be part of your weekly staff meetings or unfamiliar, maybe a new team member who didn't have the research uh, background from the workshops that we all did together. They were like, what is going on Actually, here? You know? no, nobody, nobody questioned the topic at my staff meeting. I think there wasn't anybody new there. So maybe that, that didn't <laughs> fall into that category. In the organization as a whole, there were some, some folks who were like, what's this thing? But that was okay. We took them, you know, openly with like, okay, well, let's have a chat about it. Like, you know, happy to chat more about it, explain what we're doing. Um, There were some misconceptions along the way, for sure. Um, What were some of those? That's interesting. Some of the misconceptions were that we were setting hard boundary rules. And it was like, no, 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 no. We're just here to have a conversation. Oh, about what's okay and what's not okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like what kind of rules? Like they were worried you were prescribing behaviors or something or... Prescribing behaviors and, yeah, this is okay, that's not okay, being more judgmental than I think we we were just trying to observe what we were doing. So there seems to be this idea that in diversity and inclusion, I think one of the pitfalls in this whole work, this whole field, is that people think of it as thought police, you know? There are certain behaviors that are okay or words or actions that are okay and not okay. And, And you're a bad person if you do these things that are not okay. And you're expected to know what they are. You know, they're kind of unwritten. So what you just said about people saying, hey, we're just asking some questions here. We're having a conversation. It's it's what we call a spirit of inquiry. Yeah, and that, I think that's super important in these kinds of discussions because people do are worried about making mistakes or trying to come up with the single right prescriptive answer, right? And really, it is more about asking questions. We have a saying that we like to tell people, if you don't know what to do in a particular instance, just ask one question, mm-hmm. right? Because it's just the act of asking the question interrupts the norm and the behavior that's happening and gives you so much more information about what's happening but and, buy, and buys you time to think of what to do, right? But it also <laughs> is just um, such a useful tool in making it okay to make mistakes. We're here to explore, learn. We're not here to be prescribing and judging behaviors, I don't think. So asking a question like, for example. Oh, <laughs> like, how do we go about task assignments? What do you mean by that? What, yes. What do you mean by what you just said? And uh, why do you think that? Right? Like those kinds of questions. Isn't yeah, just to, just sorry, Brad, just yeah, to um, sort of have an understanding that there are other perspectives and to try and, you yeah. know, see what those other perspectives are, Yeah, um, which doesn't mean yours is wrong. It just means that there are other perspectives, right? Yeah. Actually, it brings to mind some of the workshops we did with your team early on. And there was a great variety of perspectives and people were very willing to share those with us. And I think an important part of that was for someone to be able to share their perspective, even if they thought it might not be PC, mm-hmm. uh, and be validated, at least to the point to say, we care about what you have to say and think about as you take this journey towards you know, building a more inclusive culture. We need that. We need not everyone to agree, or we're all just going to sit around nodding heads at each other, right? And we need some debate. Maybe that kind of riffs off of the debate culture that already exists for the technical work. Exactly. And we set it up that way because it wouldn't have done us any good for people to sit in the room not share their thoughts, leave the room and say, like, yeah, I didn't believe anything that we just talked about. Like, the whole idea was to change the culture as a group. And that meant 
for all of us. It wasn't like changing the culture of some people. It was changing all of our culture to get to understand each other. The collective culture. Exactly. You know, and I would look at that and say, as a social scientist looking in the windows, that inquiry or curiosity, the ability to ask questions is part of the culture, a cultural indicator. How do you think that's impacted innovation? I mean, you've worked on the teams at Apple that are the most innovative, that have changed technology in the way we all use it across the world. Um, how important is that aspect of your culture to innovation, hearing those ideas that maybe are coming from quieter people, for example, or exhibiting leadership where you circle back to make sure those ideas are, are heard? Well, of course, in innovation, we want to hear all the ideas, right? I think one big thing about innovation is like the brainstorming. And so if we're leaving some percentage of great ideas on the table, it's, of course, better to hear them all. So I think this, this helps us. It's like right up our alley. And I think the, that norm also, even if the idea of the moment when you return it back to the person isn't the best idea in the world, or it's, just, it's still about establishing that norm so that they feel confident to be able to say exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And they do. They they feel more inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it Included. develops. It's, it's creating a norm of the meeting, right? Like, it's okay yeah. to, to the, do that. The norms and values. So here's how we usually like to frame this in the context we like to set when we talk about interrupting everyday bias in our NCWIT workshops. So we like to make very clear that the bottom line is that underrepresented groups aren't broken. They don't need to be fixed. They don't want to be fixed. And uh, majority groups aren't the enemy. So this isn't about you know pitting women and men against each other. It's about realizing that we all grow up in this culture that with similar kinds of biases and exposes similar kinds of narratives like that, and that these manifest in the workplace culture as well. And so we can recognize that we all grow up in that and share those biases. And the good news about that is that we can take action together to address those. And so we like to lay that down as the bottom line or that ground context because to allay those misperceptions that this is about you know, people blaming each other. It's not about blame. Yeah. And it's not about fixing people. It's about fixing systems yeah. together. And I... Speaking as a man for a moment, <laughs> yeah, there's a collective sigh of relief from a lot of the men in the in the room when we say, you know, men are not the enemy. Thank God this isn't going to be one of those trainings where we're told how bad we are, right? Was it, did you get any kind of reaction from your team when we lay out these ground rules pretty early on? The interesting thing to me is, is that there are many men who have really been happy with some of the changes that we've made because it's in some ways a nicer environment mm -hmm. is what, you know, if you're not interrupting people, it's turned out that it is something that everybody has enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point, I think, because it is that's the benefit of changing the environment, right? Not fixing people. Changing the environment makes it better for everyone. Exactly. The second thing we need to do is learn how to recognize biases when they come up, especially those insidious you know, unconscious ones. If we learn to recognize them, then we can surface and deal with them or mitigate them. People always say, we need to eliminate unconscious bias. I always say, no, you can't do it. It's impossible, right? The best you can do is realize that it exists, recognize it, and then respond to it. Even before that, we have to kind of talk about what bias is. Yes. What psychologically are we talking about here? Right. And this, I think, helps People, when we discuss this in our workshops, it helps people with that blame piece, let go of that blame piece. When we talk about kind of the social science and the psychology behind why people have biases, and it goes to the point that they result from schemas, right? And so 
this schemas that we all have in our head are kind of mental maps that we need, right? They are good. They're necessary. We'd be paralyzed without them. It's important to recognize that it, we have schemas for very simple concepts, right? Like a car, a mall, a tree, and they help us navigate the world so that, you know, the first time you see a brand new car you've never seen before, make or model, it's coming hurtling towards you and you know to get out of the way because you know that it is, in fact, a car. And you know all kinds about things about the car, even though you've never seen it before. You know it has a steering wheel. You know it has all these other things. And so they help us navigate the world. But And then we have schemas like that for uh, more complex concepts, of course, too, like what makes a good technical person, what makes a good leader, what's appropriate male-female behavior. And so it's when things don't fit our schema or we misinterpret things that that bias sneaks in and is problematic. The thing that's always fascinated me about schemas is that the vast majority of them are unconscious. It's the proverbial iceberg, right? You can only see the tip of it. Most of it is under the surface. And we are so accustomed to dealing with schemas. I mean, learning is actually described as building schemas for our children that we don't see them anymore. They are so obvious that they're invisible and we forget to deal with them. It makes it you know, a very powerful force in our lives, but it's also a hard thing to change when we're when we're asked to recognize and respond to, to bias. Right. So it's all about trying to make them visible again <laughs> and realize the limits of your schema and where it ends. But making that okay. So that also helps take away the blame, I think, right. you know, peace, because you know that they are good things. Yeah. But Which brings us, you know, to the idea that, that we bring these schemas and biases into our work from... Our society, the way we are raised, and into the workplace. And then we've kind of, to help people, I think, recognize those schemas, we like to talk about how it shows up at work, right? So we're all running around in the world, growing up, developing these schemas before we get to work, and then we come into the workplace, and the biases that result from our schemas tend to play out in like two different ways in workplaces. They play out in these subtle dynamics, which is what we're talking about today, right? The everyday biases. But there's also another level they play out in the institutional barriers or how they get encoded into interview practices or performance evaluation or other kinds of business processes. And so I think those are the two levels we like to help people think about in terms of how the biases show up. How how did your team first react, do you think, when when interrupting everyday bias became the topic? You have to look in the mirror and say, what do I think about these things? What unconscious schemas do I have that I'm going to need to deal with? It's certainly different than your normal coding kind of meeting, I think. Yeah, and fortunately, I think we have a curious group. And as such, I mean, many people in tech are curious. And so as such, they were interested in sort of observing themselves and observing other people and having a chat about this to understand it better. As you say, there's there's lots of jargon in this topic and it kind of fits well with with tech because we have lots <laughs> of jargon in tech. So people were happy to hear like, oh, hey, there's a word that represents this and now I can use this word. Did they actually use it? I mean, you mentioned you had team meetings where you would address, you know, uh, moments of bias that maybe people would bring up. Did they use some of the terms? I mean, we've oh, got to cover some more. They did use they the did. language. They did, yeah. Once, you know, it's a group that once they learn something, then they want to <laughs> they want to use the appropriate terminology. Uh, so it was jargon club. It was learning. Point. Yes, it was so fun. They were like, "This microinequity will not stand." Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not quite like that, but <laughs> not that geeky as well. But speaking of jargon, there are some terms that we use in social science to describe 
everyday bias, and we found them to be helpful in teaching people how to recognize uh, what everyday bias looks like, especially in tech environments. So I think we're just going to talk about three of these um, that we find particularly fascinating and particularly common uh, and ones that are really important for people to know how to kind of interrupt and intervene. And the first one is micro inequities, uh, also sometimes called microaggressions. And basically, these are small, subtle slights that happen in interactions, somebody looking at their watch and not listening to you, different kinds of things that if it only happened once, it wouldn't be a big deal, once or twice, right? But because it happens over and over, it's kind of like a dripping faucet that just subtly chips away at your sense of belonging. Some examples of these that we've seen in tech, and uh, Kim, you may have some of your own that this, these remind you of, but it can be even like tone of voice, right? So actually, Brenda has a good idea, as if this is the most surprising thing in the world. And uh, it's just a subtle tone of voice. And we've already talked a little bit about Frequent interruptions in meetings, also people get, having their ideas ignored or somebody else getting credit for those ideas. Um, and another example is being misrecognized for in a particular meeting saying, you know, we need to wait till the lead engineer gets here and she's sitting right there at the other end of the table. Hey, that's me. <laughs> um, and so just, again, not intentional, but very frustrating and kind of wears you down after time if you constantly have to prove again yourself and that uh, validate your credentials, that sort of thing. So those are some examples, I think, of micro-inequities. The that- thing I always found interesting about micro-inequities, and some interesting research has been done on this, is during exit interviews for women who have left their jobs, micro-inequities are reported as the number one factor for mid-level women mm-hmm who maybe have been at the company 20, 30 years in some cases and achieved what looks like success on the outside, the number one reason that they're leaving at twice the quit rate of men is micro-inequities. And this starts to make sense as you look at it because it's the drip, 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 like you said, Catherine, of a cumulative effect, chipping away at your sense of belonging. But as you rise up the ranks, and maybe you've noticed this too, Kim, you're surrounded by more and more men. The majority group, are the ones who are occupying the higher, the upper echelons, uh, the C-suites of the company. And so the micro-inequities often increase in frequency of occurrence. And so does the fatigue in dealing with them, on and on and on. So women often leave for greener pastures or what they hope is greener pastures. And um, it it presents a great lever. If we can get a handle on micro-inequities, we might be able to change that exclusive culture to a more inclusive one. In this case, it's small things that make it super uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, And they just kind of, you know, drain on you after a while. And I think that's the point you're making, Brad, is that after a while, it's like not a one day thing. It's not a one moment thing. It's not a one meeting thing. But after a while, you just kind of get pulled down. And so it's like some small things that can be done to turn those things around is the good news. Yeah. And speaking of intersectional concerns also, I think that these kinds of micro-inequities are the sorts of things that are exacerbated for women and men of color or people who are otherwise disenfranchised in other ways have even more exposure to some of the, these kinds of micro-inequities and are mistaken, you know, if it, to the extent which you don't fit the schema for who should be in this job, that kind of misrecognition happens on all kinds of levels like that. You don't belong here, being the message. You know, another interesting thing that I've noticed in working with people in tech environments for many years is that micro-inequities are not only unconscious to the person who's 
behaving that way, right? Issuing a microinequity. They're often not aware of it. But it's often not something that the recipient, the receiver of the microinequity, is aware of consciously. You know, it's accumulated because they're so slight sometimes as to be almost, you know, you're not even saying just let that roll off your shoulder because you didn't even notice it. Mm -hmm. But cumulatively, now sometimes you have a microinequity that's like obvious to you, even if the person who's doing it is oblivious to it. Yeah. Or if you've had it happen to you so often, you sort of just start to accept it as normal and kind of stop noticing it as well. Or just, you know, like I can't notice this anymore or I won't be able to survive here. Well, and we've all seen people that are in a certain environment and. And they're, you know, maybe not doing well in an environment and you switch them to a different environment and they thrive. Mm. So um, begs the question, what's different there? Yes. You know, what was it that unlocked their It potential? could be many things, but we've seen we've all seen that. Exactly. Which brings us to another unconscious bias, uh, everyday bias that we often seen called personality penalties. And this has been noticed by many people, and they say, well, I didn't know it had an actual label, but this is what we call it in our research. And so this is the idea that certain behaviors that majority group members, like men, are rewarded for, the exact same behaviors when exhibited by a woman is what they're penalized for. So where a man might appear to be you know, visionary, bold, or assertive, the same behaviors when exhibited by a woman, a woman would be that she's uh, pushy, bitchy, bossy. Right? In large part because those behaviors are going against expected gender norms, a fancy way of saying against schema, yes. you know, against bias. And so they can result in penalties, not only penalties you know, enforced by men against women, but by women against other women in some cases because we all share these biases. So personality penalties kind of reveal themselves. And maybe you've heard some of these things before saying, well, she has a challenging personality, right? Uh, or advice, if you could just tone it down a little, uh, take it low and slow, or, which is kind of code for just sound more like a man, <laughs> right? Uh, or this is a very common one. So-and-so just needs to be more professional, you know? And so this is a way to keep those um, behaviors at a minimum for people who aren't supposed to have those behaviors. Yeah. And that one about being more professional is also particularly another good intersectional example that women and men of color hear that uh, more frequently than sort of white employees. But I think also the personality penalty phenomenon is something that is also quite exhausting, right? And trying to always think about how, how you frame, how you're coming across. And it puts underrepresented groups in a double bind because often they're given opposing advice. So like telling women to be more assertive, do a better job of negotiating or be more confident. But then on the flip side, sometimes being told, well, that was that was too confident now or that was too assertive. Right. Now you need to tone it down, right? And so you get penalized either way. And Brad, I think there's a point that you made that I think is important, which is it's not just the men telling the women this. The women are telling the women this as well. So I think sometimes people think like, oh, women aren't biased, which is totally not true. So important for us all to to be watching ourselves, not just like I'm a woman, therefore, by definition. Right. You know, and it's not even the uh, advice to be more assertive or something. We even have programs that women are recommended to take to close the quote unquote confidence gap or to get executive presence training or to lean in. These are all what we would call 
fix-the-person approaches without even considering the system in which the person is operating, you know. And those training might be very good for anybody, you know, professional development. You know, it might be good for your career no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. But to think that those things are the solution to making a more inclusive culture, uh, it's more of a delusion than a solution. (laughs) Yes, and. Yes, and. (laughs) It can't be all by itself, right? The third phenomenon I think we like to highlight often is this interesting, really well-studied phenomenon called stereotype threat. And so most people are familiar with the term stereotype, but not have, have not always heard of the larger phenomenon of stereotype threat, which refers to the fear that a performance or behavior or something that we do is going to confirm a negative stereotype about a group to which we belong. And of course, this is unconscious. It's not like you're walking around thinking that you're about to do this, but it's been studied quite comprehensively. So more than like 350 studies with all kinds of different populations. So for example, they've taken elderly folks and they've put half of them in a control condition where they are told that they're taking a memory test and the other half are told they're taking a memory test as part of a study to understand connections between old age and senility. So just invoking that mere stereotype in that way causes that group to perform much less well than the group that's just told they're taking a memory test. And so they've shown this over and over, right, with race, gender, all kinds of different groups. And in fact, they've shown if you move the race or gender question from the top of the standardized test to the very end, that the scores of female students and students of color increase dramatically. Stereotype threat always brings to mind the power of suggestion. Is it more than that? Is it is it the power of suggestion? Of course, you said it was unconscious, right? So how does this play out in a tech environment? Yes. Well, so they have done studies related to that as well. They, In fact, this one group of researchers wanted to see if one instance of stereotype threat could have this same kind of effect. And so they took white male engineering students from Stanford and all of whom had high math scores and hadn't really, you know, daily or frequently been confronted with the stereotype that white men can't do math. (laughs) Hadn't encountered that too much. So they took half of them and put them in a condition where they were told that they were taking a test, a a math ability test. And then the other half were told that they were part of a study to understand why white students scored less well on math tests than Asian students. So just so playing into the stereotypes that are already out there. Yes. But just one time. Exactly. So it kind of illustrates that even if you're not frequently exposed to that stereotype, that just one or limited exposure can have that same kind of effect. Like with tech employees, we talk about how that manifests in the tech workplace. You don't walk around saying, oh my God, I got yeah. a bad case of stereotype threat today. <laughs> yeah. I need some aspirin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, these things all mash together, right? Micro inequities, personality penalties, stereotype threat, and others we're not even mentioning, but they show up as behaviors, right, at work. So we might notice them very commonly as not speaking up in meetings. These might be your more quieter people. Uh, Reluctance to take on leadership positions, some people being overly harsh about their own work or Mm self-disparaging. Also, uh, underperformance, even if they're qualified, you're not feeling like you're getting their full potential, or they discount their own performance, attribute it to the team rather than their own effort or something like that. Usually, we look at those behaviors and we say, well, what's wrong with that person? 
if I'm doing a performance review, I'm going to say, what can I do to help that person without ever looking at the environment in which that person's actually performing mm -hmm. and considering? Are micro inequities at play here? What kind of role are personality penalties having? Or is there potential for a stereotype threat, especially if I'm dealing with a minority in a majority group environment or someone who occupies intersectional identity categories? Suddenly, I have to pay attention to those things if I'm going to interrupt these everyday biases more effectively. And I think that's the value of, especially this concept of stereotype threat, we've seen that really shift people's lenses and how they think about this, almost like an aha moment in a lot of the times when we talk about this, both in like how they interpret other people's behavior and how they interpret their own behavior. So helping them, going back to what we were talking about, just asking one question, like anytime you think, if you sit there thinking like so-and-so just isn't a risk taker or so-and-so just isn't very, you know, confident or shy, that one question that you ask is, well, is it really internal to the person or is there something about the environment that is causing that? And then having people ask that same question about their own behavior. We've seen a lot of women in underrepresented groups feel that the, the label or understanding this phenomenon of stereotype threat is kind of just like a relief moment or aha, like, oh, now this makes sense to me. And I'm it, not really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and as a leader, recognizing that um, if you can make a small change, you can have a better team that gets better results, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, so that's kind of awesome, really, is that you can take the same team, make some small changes, and actually improve the team and the results of your team. to talk now about what we can actually do when we recognize these everyday biases. What can we do to interrupt them? How do we respond to them effectively? You know, we don't want to be destructive in how we respond to them. Say, aha, I detected bias. I have to do something about it. The worst thing to do would be, you know, make it worse or make the culture worse. But how do we respond constructively, but still intervene? Because one thing we always say, any behaviors that are not interrupted, good or bad, become normalized by default. So if we recognize bias and we want to have a more inclusive culture, we do have to do something. But what? So we actually do a workshop that involves some scenarios, hypotheticals, where we would present these with the question, what would you do or say? And, you know, there's a lot of different kinds. For example, we have a couple we can give you. One is you recommend an employee you're sponsoring for an opportunity, but get the response, eh, we're not sure she's the right fit. She's not really a natural leader. What would you do or say? So then we have small groups talk about what they would do or say in that instance. What kinds of questions would they ask about that situation? How might they intervene depending on their position in relationship with the person in the other context of the situation. Another one might be, for example, work meetings typically include spirited discussion and argument, but Janelle consistently avoids engaging in that manner. Instead, she prefers to respond via email later on. So you kind of see how these work. The first thing you got to say, is bias actually happening here? Is my bias detection apparatus calibrated right? Do I actually think there's something to intervene with? And it's usually the first question. So we we present these. And Kim, you actually, I think, took this entire exercise even further when you made it a weekly occurrence to discuss real life scenarios instead of hypotheticals. Yeah, this workshop worked really well um, with my team. Uh, we went 
through these as small groups and then together as a as a larger group and sort of picked some that we wanted to make sure we sort of took back to the to the real world outside of the workshop and this is where we came up with some of the things like for 5 or 10 minutes in the beginning of my staff that I'd talked about earlier as well as I think some of the results were catching people interrupting each other in meetings, giving each other space in meetings. Those were some of the results from this workshop. Right, right. How much time would you actually spend talking? I mean, say if you had an hour-long, two-hour-long meeting, you know, would you spend like 20% of your time talking about inclusivity uh, or, or cultural or bias issues versus, you know, the normal business of the day? or Probably not even that much. It just takes actually a, f- a few minutes. Um, as I said, five or ten minutes in my staff, sometimes other things would come up. But other things would come up when we'd have discussions just like any other thing that would come up that you have a discussion about. So it wasn't like we suddenly had this time-consuming thing that we had to do. It just kind of fit in with our normal normal life. Sometimes we say, you know, responding to these things is like building a muscle. You've got to exercise it in order, in a regular basis in order to develop this. That's what I was going to say was the importance of this kind of activity, both in the workshop and then also kind of in real life, incorporating it into your meetings is sort of practicing and thinking about it intentionally so that in the moment when it happens unexpectedly, you're more prepared to deal with it. And as a team, you just know how to yeah. react. It just kind of becomes part exactly. of you, whereas... You don't stop the meeting and, <laughs> right. you know, make some big scene of it. It's but. part of your cultural DNA. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are some recommendations that we put together based on research that um, can be applied to all these situations. So they're kind of a generic toolkit. Of course, you could nuance them or customize them for each specific scenario you're faced with. But um, what are some of these things, Catherine? (laughs) So I think uh, we touched on some of this earlier, but one of the key things we say when having people practice these kind of scenarios is that there isn't necessarily one right prescriptive answer, that this is about really developing a a spirit of inquiry and investigation into what's really happening here rather than just letting the moment pass. Oftentimes, you know, you'll see an instance like this happen and you're like, ooh, maybe that doesn't feel quite right, but you just let it go because you don't know what to do. Instead, interrupting it with a spirit of inquiry. And that can look like, you know, we said a little bit earlier, just asking one question about, well, what did you mean by that? Or why is this happening? Or being intentional about why you do and why you and others do and say things and challenging traditional ways of doing things. And, you know, we've talked about interrupting in the meeting. As you said, sometimes that doesn't feel quite comfortable. And so another thing that we have done is outside of the meeting, people have gone to talk to somebody and say, hey, what did you mean when you said this? And, and, you know, not sounding like blaming or anything, but just having a chat like, yeah, hey, this is kind of how it came across or something like that, because maybe in the meeting would have been inappropriate for for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it sounds like creating the space or expectation that this is normal in the meeting might actually drift out into the hallway after the meeting. Yeah. So I think we're all not saying like, fail if you don't interrupt every single meeting, right? right. <laughs> that, that's not the point. Sometimes that's inappropriate. So, so like you're handing out right. bias whistles for exactly. everyone to blow. Yeah. <laughs> that would be that, a little disruptive. Yeah. And I think that's actually one of the key questions that we have them ask, right? Is, is it appropriate to interrupt now or... Maybe perhaps later. So it's not like if you interrupt in the if you don't interrupt in the moment, then it, your opportunity is passed. Right. right? Sometimes right. You, you can have a much more effective opportunity down the road. And I think we also encourage people to think on two levels, right? And not just 
what can I do to interrupt the bias, but what can I do to prevent that situation from happening again? Like, how could we restructure the meeting so that there's one way where you redirect the conversation when someone's interrupting, but then you might think about how to restructure the meeting so that there's less interruptions in the future, right? right? So pre- prevention and cure, not just right. cure. Right, right. Spoken like a true doctor. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the goal of all of this is not to have less efficient meetings, right? I actually would argue <laughs> that you will end up with more efficient yeah. meetings with better end result. Um, so if, you know, just want to make sure it's not coming across as, oh, we're, you know, Spend, yeah. giving rules and regulations on how to have meetings and then you end up with politely going around and, you know, one by one taking turns, oh, yeah. you know, that's not going to end up to be, you know, an innovative culture necessarily. So it's it's not that. It's you end yeah. up with a more efficient, I think, how use do you of time. Th- how do you think about that as a top executive at Apple? What is the calculus you do to say, well, you need to spend some time on this in order to have more efficiency, more innovation, but we don't want it to overtake our lives at the same time? Because a lot of people will say, I don't have time to deal with this. I've got important work to do. But you're saying... This is important work, essential to everything else we want to accomplish. How do you figure out how much emphasis to place on it? How much attention? So I think you're not going to build the right teams if you don't spend some time on this, right? So how much time do you need to spend? I don't think any of us know the answer to that enough. And as we've been saying, the more you talk about it, the more it's just second nature, And then the less time you have to spend on it because it's just a thing that you do in a way that your team behaves. Normalized part of the business. Well, here are some of the specific questions that we actually uh, recommend when you want to apply a spirit of inquiry to a situation. The first one, as I mentioned before, is it bias? Do I think something biased? And I might get input from other people. You know, like your story of the folks who were interrupted and they're texting kind of in the meeting saying, did you see that? I don't know. Did that happen? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Should we do something? Um, but is it bias? And if so, what kind might it be? Then is it important to address? Should I interrupt now? Should I take the person aside later or address this issue at a later time? Perhaps if I do act, is acting right now too costly for me or embarrassing to someone else? And then I think there are other things to consider, too, as far as how context matters, whether it's the context of the situation or your relationship with the person so and your relationship in the company, your standing in the larger company. So some of those questions are thinking about what kind of relationship do I have with the particular people in this scenario? Do I know them well? That's going to affect how I respond. Do I not know them very well? Power structures. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, right. How does my role or like status in the team or the organization affect? Am I more junior? Am I more senior? And how does that shape what I can do and maybe who I might have to bring in to help assist or that sort of thing? And also just other questions about how, you know, my gender or race or other kinds of social identities might influence what I can or cannot do, right? Because sometimes it's easier to intervene as a male ally than it is as a woman yourself or that sort of thing. For example, in an interrupting situation, right? It's easier to have somebody sometimes redirect the conversation to you rather than you say, hey, stop interrupting me. Exactly. <laughs> so. so ways to intervene. Again, some research-based um, recommendations uh, asking a question. 
avoiding accusations is a big one mm -hmm. because like I said, we don't want to be destructive, but if we <laughs> blow the bias whistle and point the finger at the culprit who- Doesn't it, go well. It doesn't go well. Have you seen instances where that's happened? I, I think it's one of the landmines that inevitably people step on. Like we always say, I think, assume best intentions until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, another one is to arouse dissonance, right? People don't like to be inconsistent. We strive very much unconsciously, but mostly consciously too, to be consistent. So if we, if we arouse inconsistency, it might be something like, I'm surprised you would say something like that, considering how supportive you are of women in computing. <laughs> it's a sideways <laughs> way to point out, hmm, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it will trigger someone to want to be more consistent. It's a challenge. Or, it's a spirited way to ask that question. I always like the strategy of, you know, I used to think that myself, but then I, you know, came to realize. <laughs> Another strategy is pivot. You know, this is a way of not confronting someone directly, but letting them know they made a mistake in a socially graceful way. Right? <laughs> For example, you know, if someone thinks that a colleague is a clerical worker, right? Uh, you could walk up and say, hi, have you met our new software engineer, you know, to kind of cut that one yeah. off right at the beginning. That's yeah. great. I've seen that work actually a have few you, times. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> have you have you done it for others or, or seen it done for others? Or um, there, There's for been uh, some, no, not so much for myself, <laughs> um, but there's been a few cases where a reintroduction has been exactly <laughs> the right uh, strategy, like, strategy <laughs> yeah. and made the point without... Yeah. Pointing anything out. Explicitly, right? yeah. Explicitly, yeah. Yeah, and somebody might be very thankful because they were oh, about to do and, something embarrassing. Well, or say right. Something. And the other person is very grateful, too, where they're like, wait, do I have to go defend myself? Like, I'm doing this role, like... Yeah, again. Um, so it's a little awkward. So it's nice for somebody else to help out in that yeah. case. Yeah. And probably one of the most effective ones, if you can pull it off, is to use humor, <laughs> right? Humor, the great disarming uh, strategy for dealing with sensitive topics. As which long as it's is. appropriate for your relationship with the person. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it could backfire, I think is the point. Yeah. yeah. So be careful with it. But asking these questions, combining with some of these strategies are all recommended ways to intervene. And like we said, it's building a muscle. So expect to have some setbacks early on, right? Mm -hmm. Make some mistakes and keep coming back. Because if you're a, a champion of building a more inclusive culture, you got to be willing to make some mistakes and keep improving, keep building that muscle, keep building that skill set so that you can be successful. And so I think this really all goes back to kind of uh, what we said early on about working as a team to develop kind of a common language, right? And ways of talking about this and a common understanding of the problems, the barriers, the biases, and these agreed upon ways of talking about and addressing them. And in tech, we talk about problems in our technology, right? Whether it be problems to solve, bugs right. to fix, whatever. And so we have a common way of talking about those. This is just adding another common language to the way we're communicating with each other. Yeah, I like that analogy. Yeah, we've also seen the most progress in a lot of companies that we work with, and Apple certainly included, when we see senior technical leaders take responsibility personally for it. You know, not 
expecting a diversity and inclusion officer to do it or a consultancy to come in and do it or, or even a, a team of people who are supposed to be responsible for culture, maybe an HR or someplace to do it. But actually taking that responsibility like you have at Apple seems to make a huge difference for, for building those more inclusive cultures. Mm-hmm. And it's contagious, I think. Have you seen team members actually doing some of the things that um, you hope they would with their... Oh, absolutely. There's some people who are huge advocates and off doing their own work as well. And I think you make a good point, like working with inclusion and diversity people is great, but the business has to take responsibility because the teams are going to look up to their leader to say like, are you participating in this or are you just like watching it? Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that's why certainly in this example, it was a huge success. And a couple of years later, which, you know, we're still learning, of course, now how things are are looking, we're seeing even more that it really has changed the culture in these people. And, you know, like any other team, there's the team members kind of go into other teams and as they're changing things in their careers and you see it kind of go to the various different teams outside of the core team that we started with, which is fantastic. I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning too, which is, you know, Interrupting everyday bias was one of the first areas you decided to focus on because it didn't require approvals or procedural changes or longer term kind of efforts. It was something you could do and make a difference immediately. But it's not enough just to do training and and discussions about interrupting everyday bias and expect your entire culture to change. It's part of a larger strategic approach uh, and a systemic approach requires other changes like in hiring practices and performance evaluations and all these other things. Yes. And so taking that systemic approach is so important. And sadly, where companies so often lose traction, things tend to get reduced to one-off piecemeal kind of approaches, disconnected from each other. So we can't stress enough the importance of taking this more strategic, multi-pronged, coherent approach to change. And many of our other episodes will address this. But putting interrupting everyday bias into this larger context is an important piece. And so often it is the place where companies we work with tend to start. One of the things I've always loved about the culture research and and workshops that we do at Intuit is this idea that uh, we create the culture together. You know, we've all got our hands on the steering wheel, whether we're asleep at the wheel or not. We are there. You know, culture defines what kinds of behaviors are acceptable or desired, and also the individual behaviors collectively define what kind of culture we have. So, you know, it's a mutually defining cycle. We know that culture is dynamic, it's always changing, and it's context-specific. The culture on one team might be different than another. Do you you notice that, Kim, that different teams have different cultures? Absolutely. Also, culture is a slow-changing process. And I think one thing that we've learned is you can see it change, but have patience. And, you know, it's hard. Sometimes we're, we're encouraging people not to have patience. So, um, <laughs> you know, trying to change it. But at the same time, I think we all have, as we're learning new things, it takes some time and we make some mistakes along the way and we learn and we continue to improve. And so you're not going to see probably cultural change, you know, in a month, but in a year over time, you'll see it, which doesn't mean you shouldn't try to change it. But it it takes some time for us all to get used to this. Maybe a slower pace than you're used to seeing in other. Exactly. And that's okay. Well, that almost wraps it up for the episode today. If you're interested in this topic and others, be sure to ask us about the tech inclusion journey. 
It's our NCWIT online platform for change leaders to help them build more inclusive cultures with powerful strategic and systemic tools. And we also want to thank Kim Varath from Apple for being our special guest today. It was awesome being here. Thank you. Yes, thank you. From Coop Studios here in Boulder, Colorado, we'd like to thank Alex Holly, our sound engineer, also Aaron Lasko and Eric Singer, our producers, and Daniel Sproul, who did our theme music. And from NC Wit, we'd like to give a big thank you to Lucy Sanders, our CEO, and to Terry Hogan, our CTO and president, and also to Adrian Bradbury and Sierra Kelly, our crack communication team. <laughs> who also designed our logo. Yes. See you next time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>